I'm going to make sure you're woke up this morning. You'll get me shouting. Um, so Pastor Joe and I, uh, we were talking actually a couple weeks ago, um, talking about what we would be preaching on. And it just so happened, I told him, hey, I'll be preaching out of Acts chapter 27 coming up next week, Dad. And, and he said, well, man, I, I'm got some scriptures from Acts chapter 27 too and I told him my scriptures and he had the same exact ones from last week uh, so you may remember a few of these scriptures a few of these bible verses from last week we didn't plan that out uh, just kind of happens that way so some of the verses that we go over today we just heard last week from Pastor Joe but that's okay because we're going to go into a slightly different direction uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 27 this morning, and you know that our booth does the be their best to get the scriptures up on the screens, but if you have your Bibles with you, you can flip it open to Acts chapter 27. But before we get to our text this morning, I always like to get a little bit of background information little that, that helps us get a little bit of context of what we'll be going over this morning, okay? So if you're familiar at all with the book of Acts, uh, especially the second half of the book of Acts, it focuses primarily on the conversion of a man named Saul, which ends up becoming the Apostle Paul. And then it kind of focuses on his subsequent missionary journeys after he comes to salvation. So Paul gets saved, and then he travels all around on all these different missionary journeys. And that's kind of what the second half of the book of Acts is all about. Um, he travels all throughout the, the region we might know as Asia Minor, if you will. Um, if you flip through Acts, you'll see uh, Philippi, uh, Derby, Lystra, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, all those different areas that he travels to, uh, which is where we get a lot of our New Testament epistles. As he would travel to these different regions, he would then write them letters uh, so that kind of makes up a little the, the majority of our New Testament. Well, long story short, as Paul is traveling, doing all these missionary journeys, spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ, he gets into a little bit of trouble with some of the Jewish leadership. Um, he ends up getting detained, arrested, if you will. Um, he ends up in court. You know, these, he, he angers these Jews that do not believe in Jesus. And they have him apprehended. Now, if you remember at that time, Rome occupied most of those regions, controlled most of those regions. So occupying Rome, they bring him to the Romans, and they're not exactly sure what to do with this Paul. I mean, they, they can't really find something specific that he did. There's kind of some false accusations. So they're not exactly sure what to do with this guy. So Paul, the Apostle Paul, as he's on one of these little trials or one of these court proceedings, he appeals to Caesar. Okay, If you remember, to, to Rome, to the Romans, Caesar was godlike. He was almost like a deity, if you will. And the Apostle Paul, who had Roman heritage, appeals unto Caesar, okay? So because Paul appeals to Caesar, they have to take him to Rome to appear in Caesar's court, okay? So they have to extradite Paul from Caesarea to Rome. In order to do that, they have to travel on some ships, some, some boats. That's how they traveled 
back then to get to there. So they had to do a little bit of sailing, all right? Now, in a nutshell, that kind of gets us up to Acts chapter 27, okay? So we're, we're just following this narrative of the Apostle Paul, who's arrested, he's a prisoner, and they're going to extradite him because he's appealed to Caesar. They're going to take him to Rome to Caesar's court and let him hear Paul's defense and let Caesar decide what to do with Paul. Okay, so that gets us up to Acts chapter 27. Now, as we read this, I always try to remember every, or remind everyone the Bible is, is not a novel to entertain us. You probably get tired of hearing me say that. It, it's not just a novel to entertain us or amuse us. These are narrative writings of, from a biblical author that is trying to communicate to us. Okay? The, the author, which we believe is Luke, has recorded these events and in, in, written them in, in a manner in which he wants the readers to draw certain conclusions. So that's the way that we should look at this, this chapter this morning, okay? Acts chapter 27, verse 1. Remember all of our background information. It says, And when it was determined that we should sail into Italy, they delivered Paul and certain other prisoners unto one named Julius, a centurion of Augustus' band. Now, we kind of need to remember this individual, it mentions Julius. Now, we don't know much about Julius other than he's some sort of guard. He's a centurion of some type, uh, and he is in charge of these prisoners. As they're going to board this ship, this man is in charge. He's, so he's in charge of Paul, making sure he gets from here to there to appear in the court where he needs to. We need to remember Julius this morning, okay? Verse 2. In entering into a ship of Adramidium, we launched, meaning to sail by the coasts of Asia, and one Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, being with us. And the next day we touched at Sidon, and Julius courteously entreated Paul and gave him liberty to go unto his friends and to refresh himself. Okay, so the apostle Paul's a prisoner, but he's, he's a nonviolent offender. So this Julius, maybe he's a reasonable guy, we don't know. He kind of says, hey Paul, I'm going to give you a little bit of liberty. You can go hang out with your friends a little bit while we're here, but report back here on this day because we need to continue on about our journey. They're sailing on their way to Rome. Remember, he has to get this apostle Paul to Caesar's court. That, that is his charge, that is his commission. But Julius allows Paul some liberties. Go ahead, you can be ministered to. I don't know whether they, maybe they brought Paul some new clothing. Maybe they gave him some good food, something like that. His friends did, some of the other apostles did, something like that. Okay, so Julius allows it. Verse 4, And when we had launched from thence, we sailed under Cyprus, because the winds were contrary. And when we had sailed over the sea of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia. And there the centurion, that's Julius, found a ship of Alexandria sailing unto Italy. And he, be, he put us therein. And when we had sailed slowly many days, and scarce were come over against Snidus, the wind not suffering us, we sailed under Crete over against Salmone. 
and hardly passing it, came unto a place which is called the Fair Havens, nigh whereunto was the city of Lassie. So, so they resumed their journey. I, I think the, a lot of the biblical theologians believe this was like a grain ship, you know, that they hauled grain predominantly on this specific sailing route. So they get back on their journey. They find this grain ship. Julius takes all of his prisoners and says, let's get on this boat. They're going to where we need to go. Everyone get on this boat. Okay, now, I don't know much about the nautical world. I'm not going to act like I'm sort of pro at sailing. I don't. But I did do a little bit of research in preparation for this sermon this morning, and I do understand that there is a certain sailing season, especially in this region, this Mediterranean-type region. There's a certain sailing season. There are times when the winds are good, and you can sail, and they're, they're predictable. And then there are times when they're not, and they actually close the sailing season. They will not sail at certain times of the year. The, now, the good times are kind of spring, summertime. That's when sailing's good. The winds are predictable. They can get to where they need to go. But the fall and winter, not so good. So when it comes into late fall in this particular area, they, they start saying, hey, we, we can't sail these routes anymore. Sorry, we, we can't get to this until the springtime. The, the sailors know they've done this. They're experienced. They're the experts. We're just not going to sail anymore. So this journey that they're on, it's pushing the limits of the good sailing season. Okay, they're kind of coming to the tail end of when the right time to sail is. Okay, that gets us to verse 9. Everybody with me so far? A lot of this so far is just background information. All right, we're, we're following this narrative. Verse 9. And when much time was spent, remember they're at a place called the Fair Havens. And when much time was spent, and, was sailing, and when sailing was now dangerous, because the fast was now already passed, Paul admonished them and said unto them, Sirs, I perceive that this voyage will be with hurt and much damage, not only of the lading of the ship, or the lading in the ship, but also of our lives. So we see here, look back at verse 9. It, it gives us a little hint that Paul must have been fasting, because it says, because the fast was now already passed. Paul had been observing some type of fast. Even as a prisoner, he's fasting. They believe that he was observing the Day of Atonement fast, because that is towards the fall time. So Paul had been fasting, he's the prisoner, he's on his way to Rome, follow with me now, don't, don't, let's not lose our place, he's observing this day of atonement fast, and, and that is how theologians can roughly calculate what time of the year this was, and, and it's getting towards the end of that sailing season, and Paul's fasting, and his fast is over with, and because Paul fasted, because he's a man of God, because he's a man of prayer, he gets this divine revelation. He gets some sort of godly inclination that this next voyage, when they get back on that boat, it's not going to go good. It's not going to go good. The Holy Spirit just speaks to Paul and, and puts something in his heart, puts something in his gut. Every one of us in here has had that little feeling, right? That little check in your spirit. Something's just not right. Maybe you can't elaborate on it completely, but the Holy Spirit spoke. I've been fasting, I've been praying, and I believe that we should not do this. Paul gets that. He calls Julius, 
the centurion, the guy that's in charge, trying to get this man to Rome. He calls the crew together. He calls the captain of the ship together. And he says, sirs, I perceive that this voyage will be with hurt and much damage. Not only of the lading of all the cargo that we have, possibly wheat or whatever other type of goods it may have been. But he says, the ship also and of our lives. I've been praying and, and, and God has spoken to me. The word of the Lord came to me and it said, don't get on this ship. It's not going to go good. There's something in Paul's spirit that told him, we better not go on this voyage. It's going to go bad. Now, let's look at verse 11. And this is the verse we're going to key in on today. This is our verse for today. Look at Acts chapter 27, verse 11. It says, nevertheless, the centurion, Julius, nevertheless, Julius believed the master and the owner of the ship more than those things which were spoken by Paul. Verse 12 says, And because the havens, remember they're at the fair havens, and because the haven was not commodious to winter in, the more part advised to depart thence also, if by any means they might attain to Phoenice, and there to winter, which is a haven of Crete, that in lies towards the southwest and the northwest. And when the south winds blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, loosing thence, they sailed close by Crete. We see here that Julius the centurion had a decision to make, didn't he? He had a decision that came before him. He's got Paul on one hand, this prisoner, saying, Sirs, I perceive that this voyage is not going to go good. We're going to lose the cargo. The ship's going to be destroyed. We may die. I don't know. Uh, i just been praying. I've been fasting, and this is not going to go good. And then on the other hand, he has the shipmaster, the owner of the ship. And he's saying, eh, thanks, Paul. Get on the ship, everybody. Let's go. Who should Julius listen to? Paul? He's just a missionary. Or the shipmaster, who is the sailing expert. He does this for a living. He owns the vessel for crying out loud. Who should Julius listen to? Some man of the cloth? Some religious guy talking about I've been praying and some sort of invisible being spoke to me and said this? Or some guy who does this for a living? Who should Julius listen to? Paul, yeah, he's well-traveled. I know that he's a missionary, but the shipmaster sails for a living. He does this for a living. From his youth up, he's done this. It's what he does. Technically, Apostle Paul, he's just a tent maker. What's he know about sailing? What's he know about the prevailing winds? I'm going to trust the expert in this case. Yes, yes, Paul, we know you have a long religious background, but he's the sailor, not you. You're a prisoner. Don't you know, Paul, how long this man has been doing this? Don't you know how many times the shipmaster has sailed this very route? Be quiet, Paul. Thanks for your two cents, but I'm going to trust the experts on this one. Oh, you mean to tell me Jesus told you not to get on this ship, huh? Isn't he the same one that you got detained for? This Jesus character? 
you going around talking about the gospel of Jesus that some man rose from the dead. Now you're saying he's telling you not to get on this ship because you've been praying and you've been fasting. And now this Jesus guy says that this, this voyage is not going to go well, huh? Isn't he the same one that's got you into this legal trouble, Paul? Isn't he the reason why you got handcuffs on? Apparently he's not working for you then. What makes you think he can go predict the future? Aren't you a prisoner, Paul, on your way to Caesar's courtroom because of this Jesus character? Why don't you let the experts handle the journey? Sit down and be quiet. I own the ship. You can go on and worry about what you're going to say to Caesar. You got bigger fish to fry. And look, the south winds are blowing softly. Perfect. Perfect conditions. No problem. Get on the ship, everybody. You go worry about religious matters, and you leave the sailing up to the experts. Thanks, Paul, but no thanks. Nevertheless, look at that verse 11 again. The centurion believed the master and the owner of the ship more than those things which were spoken of by Paul. Who will you believe, church? Who will you believe? How many times in our lives have we had this same decision to make? On one hand, I can listen to God in his word. Or on the other hand, I can listen to the experts. How many times in our lives have we had this same exact decision that Julius had to make? Well, I can believe God at his word, or I can believe man at his word. Which, which one ought I to choose in my particular situation? Who will you believe, church? Who will you believe this morning? Who is it that you have been believing? Whose word have you been receiving and embracing and taking in? Who will you believe? Julius, the centurion, he believes the experts rather than Paul in his divine revelations. Julius sticks with the experts. He goes with the experience of man, the skill set of man, the talents of man, man's ability, man's intuition, man's knowledge. God on one side Experts on the other, who are you going to believe this morning? The experts or the word of the Lord? Who will you believe? The experts, the ones that claim all the science, the ones that claim all the data is on their side, or the word of God? Who will you believe? The experts, the ones that wear lab coats and have prestigious educational credentials? Or the word of God. Who will you believe church? The experts? The ones that have charts and graphs and calculations? Or the word of God? Who are you going to listen to church? The experts with all the statistics? With all the predictions? With all their probabilities? Or the word of God? Who are you going to believe? Who are you going to listen to in your situation? The experts or God? 
Who are you going to listen to? Whose word will you trust for you and your marriage and your family? Rearing your children. Which career path to take? Who will you, whose word will you believe? Whose report will you embrace? Man's or God's? Now, just in case I haven't got you convinced yet, and, and let's be honest, there are some smart experts out there. There are some extremely intelligent individuals out there. I'm not making fun of any one of them. Not at all. Not at all. There are some highly intelligent people out there. But their word pales in comparison to the word of God. They cannot match the wisdom of God. They cannot match the power of God. They cannot. Man's best, best that we have to offer, it's vanity before the eyes of an almighty God. Well, I have a few things that I brought this morning to show you, to help convince you that we ought to believe God rather than the experts. I got this from a website, cei.org. And again, I'll say there are some smart experts out there, but they, they pale in comparison to God's wisdom. Booth, let's put our first article on up there. I'll look at this here. This is the New York Times, Sunday, August 10th, 1969. Note the date, if you will, everyone. Let's read that little part in the red down there. It says, Palo Alto, California, August 5th. The trouble with almost all environmental problems, says Paul Ehrlich, the, pro the population biologist, is that by the time we have enough evidence to convince people, you're dead. This was in 1969. Okay, let's go to our next one. Who are you going to believe, the word of the experts or the word of God? Here's one from 1970, the Boston Globe. Thursday, August, April 16, 1970, says scientists predict a new ice age by the 21st century. Look what it says, air pollution, in case you can't read it. Air pollution may obliterate the sun and cause a new ice age in the first third of the next century. Down there in the bottom red, says the demand for cooling water will boil dry the entire flow of the rivers and streams of the continental United States. This is written in 1970. Anyone go over any bridges this morning? Any of you cross the Muskingum River? There's water and it still isn't there. Who are you going to believe? The experts or the word of God? Let's go on to our next one. Here's one from 2000, year 2000. Children won't know what snow is. Snowfalls are now just a thing of the past. Down there at the bottom it says, Children just aren't going to know what snow is, he said. This is the experts. Who are you going to believe, church? The experts or the word of God? Who are you going to trust? Who are you going to subscribe to? What are you going to embrace in your life? Everything that they pump out and sell to you every day? Wait, wait, kids aren't going to know what snow is. The river's going to dry up. I have a creek that runs in my backyard. It's probably like an inch or two deep. It's still running. We haven't gotten rain for months and months. Why isn't it dried up like the experts predicted? All right, let's go to our next one. Here's one from 2004. Britain to have a sub Siberian climate by the year 2020. So several years ago. 
Now the Pentagon tells Bush, climate change will destroy us. Britain will be Siberian in less than 20 years. Guess what? It's not Siberian. And that was supposed to be by 2020. Who are you going to believe? Who are you going to believe? You're going to believe someone. If you ain't believing this, you're going to believe that. Let's go to our next one. Prince Charles. This is from 2009. Prince Charles says only eight years to save the planet. We have just 96 months to save the world, says Prince Charles. Now, Prince Charles might be a good guy. I don't know much about him at all. I don't follow any of that stuff at all. But he's wrong. He's wrong. The expert's wrong. We're still here. We, we, we weren't destroyed. Sorry, Prince Charles. I think I'll rather stick with this. This planet is going to exist for exactly as long as God wants it to exist. We got another one, I think. Here's one. I wanted to read you this one. I know that writing is kind of small for you to read. 1967. There should be a dire famine by 1975. Long, long, long time ago. I was born in 1976. I'm 47 years old. So by 1975, year before I was born, all this is supposed to happen. Los Angeles. It is already too late for the world to avoid a long period of famine, a Stanford University biologist said Thursday. Paul Ehrlich said the time of famines is upon us and will be at its worst and most disastrous by 1975. Listen. He said the population of the United States is already too big. That birth control may have to be accomplished by making it involuntary. And by putting sterilizing agents into staple foods and drinking water. And that the Roman Catholic Church should be pressured into going along with routine measures of population control. Good thing that we're a Protestant church, amen? But we're supposed to have famines so bad that our already overinflated population would have killed all of us off. Clear back in 1975. This is the experts. Do you see what I'm saying? This is the experts. Is that all of them, Booth? I can't remember. That's all of them. I, I could have brought more, to be honest with you. The name of that website, the, the name of the, the article that I got it from was 50 years of failed predictions. There was actually a whole bunch of big giant lists. Those are just the ones I thought you could see and we could read easiest. But do you see what I'm getting at? The, the experts... And they may be intelligent people. They may be. I don't, I don't know these people. I'm sure they have highly, highly prestigious degrees in certain things. I'm sure they are. I'm sure they've done calculations that would make my mind boggle, your mind boggle. But what I'm saying is they're wrong. The experts may try their best, but they cannot trump the written word of God. The written word of God. What is it that you will believe this morning? The experts or the word of God? you got to choose. Who here remembers Y2K? Remember that? A lot of you chuckle because we can laugh at it now. You know, hindsight's 2020. they say. I remember I just got married a few months before Y2K was getting ready to strike. You know, 
my wife are looking at, we, we don't have any money to do all these preparations. Honestly, I, this is not a joke. I think we bought one gallon extra of drinking water. It was, it was about all we could swing for our preparations. We just got married. We're scratching nickels and dimes together just to survive. I think we bought a gallon drinking get jug of drinking water to prepare for what the experts said. All of our electronic systems are going to crash. They're all going to crash. We don't know how long this is going to be sorted out. Everything's going to come. To just Supposedly it's going to wreak havoc on industry and economies. That's what the experts said. They were wrong. They were wrong. You know what we had to do back then? Just trust in God. Trust God. Who are you going to believe, church? How many of you remember the 2012 Mayan calendar? You remember that? It was, I remember I, I worked at the, the new bakery company at the time. I remember buddies coming up to me. Hey, man, you seen that Mayan calendar thing, man? This is 2012, man. What's going to happen December 31st at the end of the year? Man, we're going to be blown off the planet. The world's going to end, so on and so forth. We're still here. We're still here. Not even the Mayans could predict it. Brothers and sisters, all failed predictions of the experts. All failed Who are you going to believe, the experts or God at his word? Please understand, I'm not making fun of the expert, not making fun of Prince Charles. That's not what the pulpit's about. He he may have been sincere and genuine. Who knows? I'm not poking fun at any of them. I'm just saying the word of the Lord is above the opinions and the predictions of man. Far above it. There's no comparison Let's get back to our narrative now. Acts chapter 27 verse 14 says, But not long after there arose against it a tempestuous wind called Eurocladon. That kind of means like a typhoon came. And when the ship was caught and could not bear up into the wind, we let her drive. And running under a certain island which is called Claudia, we had much work to come by the boat. And when they had taken up, they used helps, undergirding the ship, and fearing lest they should fall into the quicksand, strike sail, and so were driven. And we, being exceedingly tossed with a tempest, the next day they lightened the ship. And the third day we cast out with our own hands the tackling of the ship. Verse 20 says, And when neither sun nor stars in many days appeared, and no small tempest lay on us, All hope that we should be saved was then taken away. Do you understand? That is what man's can offer you. It's going to end with no real hope. Man's word, the experts can offer you no real hope. It will leave you hopeless. The best that the world has to offer will leave you hopeless. All hope was lost in this situation because they heeded the advice of the experts. And they dismissed the word of the Lord. They dismissed divine revelation. They dismissed the nudging of the Holy Spirit. All hope that we should be saved was then taken away. Church family, we have to learn to listen to the word of God. Listen to the voice of God. He knows the end from the beginning. The experts may try their best, but the opinion, their opinions are nothing compared to God's commands. Nothing compared to God's word. If God says, don't get on the ship, it doesn't matter what the experts say. 
If God tells you in your marriage, don't get on that ship, don't go that direction. If God tells you as a leader of your family, hey, do not get on that ship, you better listen. You've got to learn to listen to the Spirit of God when He tries to speak to you. Sometimes you've got to turn off all the world of the, or the noise of the world and go tell God, I need directions from you, Lord. Or I'm going to crash this ship. I'm going to get on a ship that sinks, Lord. We got to learn to not get on the ship when God tells us don't get on the ship. Does not matter how long the shipmaster has been sailing. Does not matter the expertise level of everyone in their opinions. Does not matter the stats or the probabilities. Doesn't matter what the, they say. Doesn't matter if the south winds are blowing softly at the time. Well, Lord, this seems like such a good thing to do. There's a way that seems right unto man. But the ends thereof are the ways of death. Doesn't matter if the conditions seem perfect. We can get this journey in. No problem. I've done this many a times before. If God says don't, don't. By the way, do you notice all the the nautical language here in Acts chapter 27? Uh, We're not going to read the whole chapter. It's actually kind of a longer chapter. But it has all kinds of... uh, uh, seafaring type language, strike sail, let her drive, using helps, bearing up into the wind. And if you read the rest of the chapter, sometime this week, finish chapter 27. We're only going to barely go through half of it or so. But read it and note all the, the nautical language that's in it. And I want you to know this. Acts chapter 27 is one of the world's best records of ancient nautical practices that we have. You know that? It comes from the Bible. Hmm, imagine that. The men think the ship's going to sink. If we were to continue reading, we're not. But if I can ask the band, they can make their way back. Don't tune out just yet. So all these men think the ship is going to sink and perish. And, and like they said, all, all hope is lost. They'd abandoned all hope, and they're like, guys, we're going down. We aren't going to survive this. They had done everything that man could do, threw off all the cargo, all the wheats floating into the sea. They'd used every technique they could, and it just didn't work. They were hopeless. But Paul has another divine revelation from God and says, don't worry. Yes, the ship's going to be lost because y'all weren't supposed to get on it. You shouldn't have got on it. So it's going down, but I'll save every last one of you. So Paul encourages the men aboard the ship and says, guys, we're not going to die. Not one single one of us. But I wanted to look at this one particular last verse that Paul says because I, I think we get an answer for our little situation here. Acts chapter 27 verse 25 says, Wherefore, wherefore sirs, be of good cheer. For I believe God that it shall be even as it was told me. Do you see our answer in there? Paul said, I believe God. That's the answer for Paul and and the crew that was on the ship, all the other prisoners and Julius. And it's your answer today. This as well as my answer today. I believe God. What do you mean you believe God? That it shall be even as it was told me. As it is written, that's how it will be for me. That is what I will believe. I love what Paul says there. I believe God. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, I believe in God. No, he says, I believe God. 
God isn't looking for brothers and sisters just to believe in him, just to believe that he exists. No, he's looking for more than that. Devils and demons believe in him. We need to believe him. Do you believe? Do you believe God at his word? Do you believe his promises? Do you hold to them this morning? Do you believe that when he speaks, it will come to pass? Do you believe God's word is immutable? It is unchanging. It is not going to change. Do you believe God's word is binding? Do you believe God's word is covenantal? Do you believe it? Be careful, brothers and sisters, when it comes to believing the experts. Be very careful. They may be genuine in trying to be helpful, but when it comes, a choice lands on your lap just like it did Julius. And you got God and divine revelation here, his word here, his promises here, or the experts. You better know which one to choose. You got to know which one to choose. Let's stand to our feet this morning. Yes. Mm-hmm.